talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer Skin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. We are heading into the long Easter weekend, raising the burning question. Is it too early to bring back the big, wet, sloppy kiss? And in my opinion, no matter how high or low the COVID cases are, I think it can wait. Here's Scott hey. Thompson! I think your auntie will be happy about that. Come here, come here, I just want to give you a hug, Junior. Come here, I just want to give you a hug. Come here, come here, come here. Ah, look at that. Might have to wait another year for that. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber is on the board. Diane and Dave in the newsroom uh, heading into a Easter long weekend. Uh, and, and you know what? Uh, guess what? Put the mask back on. It's as simple as that. You're in high risk situations. The numbers are up. People are concerned. Throw the mask on and, um, you know, do what, uh, do what you do best. Do what we've been doing for the last, uh, how many years is it now? You know, I used to keep track of what the d- the days and weeks are, but then we stopped doing that and, you know, Anyway, uh, it, it is what it is, and it's going to be a, a, well, it's a beautiful day now. The weekend, kind of unsure, but uh, again, don't forget, kids, the Easter bunny, rain or shine, COVID, no COVID, uh, it makes it through. So uh, uh, there you go. Another jam-packed show. Hope you hang around for it. Love to hear your input. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, the Premier making an announcement about a hospital uh, in Scarborough earlier on today. Obviously, the question and answer, the most interesting time during any of these. Uh, well, for the rest of us, unless you're getting the hospital, and then it's pretty good. Uh, but obviously, uh, asked about uh, heading into this weekend and mask mandates and where we are with uh, the sixth wave and such. And here's what the premier had to say on masking. You're having 15 uh, people over. Put your mask on, right? Like, it, it doesn't hurt. If you're in a crowded room, just uh, like we've been through this for two years now. Uh it's common sense prevails, right? Put a mask on. It doesn't it doesn't hurt. That's going to be up to each individual person. Uh, and you know, uh, the premier does bring up an interesting point. It's not like we don't know what to do here. Uh, it's not like we're new at this. All right. So here, here's what Dr. Uni had to say uh, in regard, or from the uh, science table, in regard to heading into the Easter weekend and where we are. Fingers crossed that this is real. This could just be intermediate and we could continue to go up. I hope not. We currently analyze the data really every 12 hours, you know, when new data points are coming in. And so far, we keep seeing the same right now. And obviously, the big concern, as Dr. Uni expresses, is medical workers, healthcare workers, and making sure that we can keep the healthcare facilities staffed. When, when we look at... Um, the situation in our healthcare workers, the numbers that we present cannot be taken at face value as numbers. But what we see there is we had a peak with the first Omicron wave. We dipped, went through a valley and are at the same level of infections in healthcare workers. Again, this is basically just reflective of community transmission. And the uh, premier again on case numbers. We're actually seeing positive results 
uh, right now with the wastewater. And let's, let's just hope it, it goes down and, and we're going to be very, very cautious. And uh, that's what we're going to take the approach moving forward. All right, there you have it. So no more on mask mandates. Uh, at this point, PEI and Quebec, the only provinces in Canada to uh, do so. Um, but again, I, I think what's really important here is is to focus on what we need to do as opposed to focus on mandates or not. And again, we got caught, we got caught up in this in, you know, uh, earlier on. And let's not get distracted. Let's not lose focus of what we're here to do and what we need to do and, and start fighting over, you know, who's doing what and in, in, in and who's not um you know there's cities such as philadelphia that are bringing back masking uh protocol and such uh you know and there's a reason for that they've got a very high hesitancy rate in philadelphia and a matter of fact the the numbers in in pennsylvania are lower than 70 percent of the population's even vaccinated so you know obviously in ontario it's a completely different scenario we've got over 90 percent of our adults uh, fully vaccinated so we are in a different time yes we need to be cautious yes we need to use common sense yes we need to wear a mask in the appropriate situations when we're in high-risk settings where we know we're in risk of spreading uh but again like you know do we have to let's fight the virus and not each other let's fight the virus and not each other and you know using you know politics and what have you to 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 tell people what to do we're pretty smart we've got some of the highest vaccination rates uh, in the free world. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're not stupid. We don't need to be told what to do. We don't need to be mandated. Yes, there's some that do things for different reasons. But again, are, are we going to start, you know, uh, bashing the last 10% over the head because they don't see the same way as the other 90%? I mean, you know, this is the same thing as the vaccination rate. And, you know, our prime minister thinking that every single person is going to be vaccinated. Well, in a free country, that doesn't happen. And you're always going to get five to 10% are going to be hesitant or just, or simply can't get it and, or don't get it. And it's the same thing with masking. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think Ontarians, Canadians are pretty smart and they know what to do to get through all of this. So let's fight the virus and let's not fight each other and have lifelong debates about, you know, whether masking should stay or go or who should have it or who shouldn't have it. We're over two years into this. We don't need to be told what to do. That's my perspective. Anyway, uh, lots coming up on the show today as we ease you into a uh, a long holiday weekend and uh, lots of stuff coming up, including uh, new uh, new degrees coming to Mohawk College, uh, which is uh, great considering where students are coming out of a post-pandemic. Also, China, speaking of, and their high numbers, Elon Musk buying Twitter. Was all uh, Just a few of the things we're going to talk about in the next uh, hour or so. We've seen lots of changes, lots of things evolve uh, and, and technology speed things up and, 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 and get us up to uh, where we need to be and our education system continues to evolve uh, and we're seeing that again as the province announced Monday that it will allow colleges to offer new three-year degree programs and additional four-year degree programs in certain fields in an effort to increase the labor pool in some sectors such as the automotive industry. To talk more about all of this, Ron McCurley is with us, president of Mohawk College and is here now. Ron, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. All right. Pleasure. I am indeed. How are you, Scott? I'm doing well. Thanks so much. So tell uh, students, parents, what have you, what is different now than than before this announcement? 
Yeah, so this allows this announcement allows colleges to uh, add to their uh, different credentials uh, three-year degrees in, in uh, applied degrees in very specific areas. So areas such as healthcare and uh, digital data, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, uh, as well as uh, development of green, uh, you know, electric and autonomous vehicles, and so on. So, uh, it is uh, it is the first time uh, colleges have been able to offer three year degrees. So, of course, we're very excited about that. Good for students uh, in terms of uh, uh, new areas of study, but also new credentials, which are. Uh, happen to be recognized uh, globally as well. So that'll be a good thing. And these are in very specific areas, obviously areas of need where there's shortages and we anticipate or seeing are involved in a, a surge in growth. Uh, absolutely right. Uh, so I mentioned some of the areas also in health. Uh, so there are a number of uh, areas in health where they would benefit from this. Also critical infrastructure uh, projects in roads and highways and uh, health, uh, hospitals, long-term care homes. So really areas where we need highly skilled workers with applied skills. Uh, this, is, this is the area that will focus the development of these three-year degrees. Why is this attractive to a student who may be trying to figure out, do I take this route, do I take that route, do I go college, do I go university? How does this, how, how does this make the decision easier? Well, I think it gives them another option, and it gives them a good option because uh, these uh, these areas of study will almost all be attached to employers and jobs on the outcome. So, mm. so when they finish and get their credential, uh, the placement rate for students coming out of college right now is incredibly high. Um, you know, many of our students would have multiple job offers even before they graduate, uh, and these areas are particularly areas of high demand. Uh, and very good paying jobs. And so uh, I, I think this is uh, for a student who's looking for an applied area of study where they can get their, uh, you know, get right in there with their hands, learn not only the theory but the practical application, uh, this is a great, uh, a great opportunity for them. We, we see many students using a combination of both the university system and the college system. Would this be applicable to that, or is this, again, setting itself apart so that's not needed as much? I think it'll allow, uh, for many students, it'll allow them to get into the work world faster, if that's what they're right. looking for, with a set of skills that will, I think, really stand the, the test of time. Uh, we certainly do have a lot of uh, students who come here from university, come to the college from university. In fact, about a quarter of our domestic students uh, come from university to get uh, a, a specific area of study where they can uh, end up uh, in, a, in the career of their choice. And so uh, I think this allows them, if they want to, to come straight into college to get a three-year degree. The degree, of course, uh, the nice thing about it is, outside of Ontario, uh, diplomas are not as uh, well recognized as degrees are, so it does give right. them the opportunity for those that want to work abroad. And how has the pandemic, the global pandemic over the last two years, changed this discussion, sped this up? Well, in so many ways. Uh, of course, the, uh, the, the labor shortage is critical. Uh, we knew it was coming. We knew there were a lot of baby boomers that were going to retire. Uh, the pandemic forced many 
or gave them the opportunity, rather, I guess, to retire mm. uh, early. So it's created a host of jobs at the same time uh, that we were already uh, critical and short on, on staff. So, uh, it, but, but what has also happened, Scott, is uh, the demand for artificial intelligence, for uh, big data, cybersecurity, uh, digital data, um, everything changed. When we went online, when everybody went online, uh, all of a sudden, these areas, all the exposures that we had in these areas showed up. And so uh, there are great uh, jobs available for people that pick up skills in the, the, these areas of study. Ron McCurley, president of Mohawk College, announcing that uh, the province announcing it will allow colleges to offer new three-year degree programs and additional four-year degree programs in certain fields in an effort to increase the labor pool in some sectors. Ron, a great idea, lots of options for students, and that's what we need. Thanks so much for taking the time. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We're hearing, obviously, uh, increases in the uh, Omicron wave here, the sixth wave here, uh, but it's uh, hitting China incredibly hard, uh, which is bizarre because uh, they've sort of got a zero COVID COVID, uh, measure in place, which basically means if there's any sign of it, they just lock everybody down. And um, obviously, this starts to affect world economies. Um, many wondering why this is happening. Apparently, uh, China's vaccination rates are not as high as they uh, lead them lead the rest of the world to believe. Also, uh, their vaccines are the older technology; they're not uh, mRNA, so therefore not as effective as we're discovering with uh, the Omicron variants and such. Which uh, obviously uh, we've seen keep. Uh, keep uh, the majority of the population from getting very sick and ending up in hospital. So uh, what China's uh, zero COVID policy basically means is as soon as there's a detection of some sort, everyone gets locked up. And uh, and China, of course, being uh, described as the world's factory in some ways, what does this mean for us and a supply chain that's already that is already taxed? Let's bring in Eric Cam, professor of macroeconomics uh, with Ryerson University and is with us now eric thank you for the time i hope you're well scott uh, as i hope you are too and to everybody listening a happy passover a happy easter a happy just be happy (laughs) exactly any reason to be happy eric it's good so are you surprised to see china running into the problems that it is and when the rest of the world seems to be getting vaccinated and moving on You know, I kind of am, although it's tempered because I speak to my friends who were born in China and come to Canada, and they've told me to set the bar very low in terms of your expectations for the Chinese government and the decisions it makes. But what I find fascinating is that as an observer of China, it seems like an amazing hub of business, of economics, of medicine, of technology, And so it seems that in terms of infrastructure and the ability to produce the leading goods in the world, there seems to be really no constraint on that. It is a leader in every area. Yet when it comes to its own people, its own citizenry and its own domestic policies, it seems to fail. But again, I've never been to China. I'm not an expert of China. Um, But as a casual observer, frankly, yes, I would expect more from a country that can basically do anything when it needs to do it. I, I just think that um, to, to quote a very famous expression, 
the whole seems to be less than the sum of the parts. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. And I think a lot of the world expected uh, China to be more at the forefront of solving this problem as opposed to getting dragged back down uh, into it. Uh, and, and obviously, as I mentioned, vaccine and hesitancy rate and information getting back and forth uh, is an issue there. So we already know, Eric, what the situation is with uh, supply chains. We've seen that happen throughout this global pandemic. Now, all of a sudden, um, it appears that China's... Again, for, for some reason, with it, with its lack of, of public policy, there is slipping back into this. What does it mean for the rest of the world? It's an interesting question, of course, because I, I like to divide these things between sort of China and the world. So, if you're in China, nothing good can come of locking down between 200 and 300 million people, and that's the most recent estimate. It's going to have a terrible effect on gross domestic product because you can only imagine the negativity that's going to creep into things like consumption, investment, prices, the supply chain. So this is devastating for the Chinese economy. When you talk about the economies surrounding it, it's, it's even more interesting because what are you to China? If you're an importing nation, if you're someone that China turns to for goods, there's a possibility that you may be called on to sell them more products than you have in the past. And that's gonna be kind of a boom to your economy. Uh, but if you're an exporting nation and you like to buy goods from China, then you're going to be into problems. So it's one of those, again, not to use these trite expressions, but it may depend on what side of the outhouse you're standing. And also it's going to matter, where are you in terms of your indebtedness to China? In other words, how big are you a trading partner to China? So one, two, three, four, you have the United States, you have the European Union, other Asian countries, and then Japan, Hong Kong. Um, I mean, they are going to be really tied up in this, right? Whether they're exporting, importing, the reality is they do a ton of both. And so they're going to be the most affected. But as you move down the list to a country like, say, oh, Canada, we're number 16. And so our, our exposure to China uh, is not as strong as one would imagine. The same as our exposure to Russia is not as strong. And that's why we haven't been as decimated by the economic effects of the war going on. So really it's, it's, a, it's a diverse question, but the answer is if you are in the top five or 10 trading nations with China, there's really two sides of a coin. You can make off like a bandit if they need your goods, but you can really be behind the eight ball if you need their goods. So obviously the world reacts depending on, as you mentioned, what side of the outhouse you're on. Uh, does this change, again, depending on what side you're on, does this change future plans, uh, especially when it becomes, uh, when we're talking about self-sufficiency? 10, 20, 30 years ago, it was all about China, the golden goose, uh, the global economy, a global pandemic has now changed all of that. With China's inability to regroup, reload per se, is this going to be a notch against them? Will it make countries look more inward than towards China? Or is it just so big you can't ignore it? Both. It is so big you can't ignore it. But we all know that there's been a real movement in the last few years to self-sufficiency. I mean, in the, in the 80s and the 90s, the big watchwords were comparative advantage and trade and openness. But if the pandemic has taught us anything in terms of the economy, many nations are realizing that we can't rely on member nations for our goods. And you can thank the supply chain for that. So I think what this is going to do around the world is reinforce to capitalist economies, 
and really non-capitalist economies too, but I'm kind of more of an expert on market economies, that we have to be more self-sufficient. Now, does that actually turn into increased self-sufficiency? You'd like to think so. Canada tends to be an outlier in this. We, how many ways can we be told that we should rely on our own natural resources and our own oil? And we don't tend to do anything about it. We don't tend to exploit our own um, comparative advantages. So it's a worldwide movement right now to look inward, to be less responsible, be less beholden to other countries and other currencies. But your first point is an excellent one. The Chinese economy is too massive. It's like the United States economy, and it's impossible to turn yourself off from it. So the best that we can hope is that these lockdowns don't last very long and that trade can continue. That's my next question. How long do you anticipate them asking uh, lasting? Because again, the rest of the world will look at China and say, come on, we're moving on here. What's the holdup? Scott, you know that I hate to, to not give an answer and I would never do that. But the only thing worse than having no answer is guessing and being wrong. Yeah. So the problem is I don't have a crystal ball and it tends to be that things in China don't move very quickly. So the only answer I'm going to give you, which you and the audience aren't going to like, is no time soon. And this is does not look good for China. It looks horrible for China. And it's really, again, this goes back to where this conversation started. For a country that can do and produce almost anything, they can build hospitals in parking lots in what seems like a day, they can't seem to get their, their fiscal and their monetary house in order. And it's quite perplexing. And if I may say so, just in case any of my students are listening, some of them are probably cheering saying, Dr. Cam says this is what happens when you're not a market economy. Well, not exactly. But I do think that there is some investigation that needs to be done between the two economies to look at one as gigantic as China and say, what is the matter? But that's for research at a different time. Eric Cam with us, Professor of Macroeconomics, Monetary Economics, International Monetary Economics, Ryerson University. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Stay healthy, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. So he was a user, then a shareholder. Now he wants to buy the place. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Elon Musk looking at buying Twitter. And and I've asked Carmi this before. I don't know why. Is this a pet project? I don't think it's an investment, or is it? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, glad to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So do we know anything more about uh, Elon Musk's relationship or love affair or whatever with uh, with Twitter? It, he said it's not a, a business investment. He said he wants a public platform that is trusted. What does that mean? What's he trying to do here? Well, it certainly would not be a business investment. We know that he has not been happy with Twitter's direction for years. He's been uh, complaining largely by his Twitter account that the company doesn't do enough to protect freedom of speech, that the controls that it has implemented to reduce uh, abuse and cyberbullying and stalking, uh, they go against freedom of speech. They prevent the the, act, the full, full interaction uh, online that he would rather they have. Of course, as we know, conservative groups, right-wing groups, uh, all applaud this um and so he's he's you know been you know using his audience he's got 80 plus million followers on twitter one of the largest uh, accounts on the platform and he's just basically been complaining but there's only so much that you can complain about at some point you sort of want to be an insider so we started buying shares in january um to you know three billion dollars in he owns about 9.2 percent of the company they offered him a, a board seat 
Uh, and then he turned it, initially he accepted it, then he turned it down because if he was on the board, he would only be able, able to own a maximum uh, percentage, 14.9% of the company. So he turned that down and then launched this hostile bid. So basically it isn't about money. It's really about Elon Musk's uh, desire to have Twitter uh, bend to his will and to essentially be a platform that allows him to do whatever he wants without answering to anyone. He doesn't want any rules. He just wants it to be his playground and he's willing to pay for it. Uh, that's what the internet started out to be, no filter, and what was said, what was said, and so on and so forth. Uh, obviously, people are trying to, uh, officials are trying to balance this and, and, and stop abuse and such. Where's the balance? Where, where is the line that uh, Elon Musk is going to draw? Well, I mean, I, I think there's a, you know, somewhere in between freedom of speech, you know, you know, my, my freedom to say what I want and your freedom to be protected from uh, rank abuse. I think somewhere in between there's a fine balance. Twitter has struggled more than most social media companies to find that balance. And largely it's a function of its architecture compared to Facebook and other uh, social media platforms. Twitter is far more open. Um, so it's a lot easier for someone who doesn't have much of a following to get an audience with someone who does have a following. And so uh, it means that there have been a lot more victims of cyberbullying and stalking on Twitter than on other platforms. And in fact, millions of people have left Twitter because they just said it was too abusive. Twitter is the smallest of the big social media platforms precisely because of that, because a lot of people just can't be bothered with the abuse or the, the perception that the company doesn't do enough to clamp down. So on the one hand, you have users who are saying, Twitter, you're leaving me open to abuse. And then on the other hand, you're saying that you know, uh, there's there are the Elon Musks of the world who are saying, whatever protections you're putting in place, well, that stifles freedom of speech. And the problem here is, if Elon Musk is, is calling the shots, essentially all bets will be off. Uh, and it will be a free-for-all for anybody who wants to be an abuser, who wants to be a cyber-stalker, who wants to be a cyber-bully. Uh, and that, of course, means that the spectrum, the, the needle is going to swing completely the other way, and Twitter's going to become a pretty nasty place for the rest of us who just want to you know, do our thing and be left alone. As owner, isn't he opening himself up for liability? He certainly is. And, uh, and, you know, the regulatory environment is about to change. The U.S. government, of course, is moving ahead with legislation that holds um, organizations like Twitter and Facebook and others accountable for what happens on their platform, that if they don't do enough to clamp down on uh, cyberbullying, as well as the spread of misinformation and disinformation, that they will be liable for what happens. Up until now, most of these companies have very famously said, well, we just made the tools. We're not responsible for what people do on them. But, uh, you know, there, there have been a number of lawsuits launched against them in recent years that have proven that, no, the, the winds are changing and these companies are going to have to fess up at some point. Uh, and so even if Elon Musk wins this battle, manages to take Twitter private, um, you know, the government's still going to come calling and there still will be rules for platforms like his, no matter what the ownership structure looks like. Who is more ethical, uh, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? Which one of these is trying is protecting us more, or <laughs> or, or not allowing us to speak? 
That's an interesting question. I think they both have ethical challenges that are unique to each one of them. I think Mark Zuckerberg is so blinded by you know the 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 original vision of Facebook that he simply refuses to accept that the culture that has evolved around it is irrevocably broken. Um, and I think Twitter's is really one of they never put the resources that they needed to in place in order to make it a balanced landscape. And of course, now Elon Musk is taking advantage of that. He thinks that he can swoop in and kind of like Donald Trump. These are the rules. I'm going to make them and whatever anyone else, else says, too bad. Um, which So I think both of them have you know ethical issues, but they, they, they kind of trend in a different direction. And I think ultimately for you and me and all of our listeners as consumers on these social media platforms, it means that we should be going in with our eyes open. We shouldn't trust Facebook. We shouldn't trust Twitter. We shouldn't trust anyone. Uh, we really should be a lot more cynical than we are. Is there a good chance this is going to happen, that he will take over? Well, money talks. And I think at this point right now, if he turns out to be the only person who is willing to dig that deep from a fiduciary financial perspective, it makes a lot of sense for shareholders. It's a pretty significant premium over where uh, it was trading before this deal was announced, this offer was announced. And so if you're the board of Twitter, you look at that offer and you go, hmm, if that's the, the best offer on the table, we owe it to our shareholders. That's our accountability to say yes, because the money adds up. It really doesn't have anything to do with ethics, believe it or not. Um, the flip side of this, of course, is, is that he is saying that if he wants to make it a growing concern, that he wants to drive the business, it's kind of hard to grow revenue if you are perceived as having no protections at all. In fact, users will, they will hemorrhage users. Government oversight will become much more focused and it'll be a lot harder for them to raise revenue. If you're an advertiser or if you are someone who builds a subscription model, you don't want this uncertainty. You want a platform that's a lot more stable. Twitter under Elon Musk will not offer that. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Elon Musk uh, could be the new owner of Twitter. Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Really appreciate it, Scott. You too. The city of Burlington has refused the application that uh, would have allowed a mixed-use uh, and, and boy, this was a honker of a development. A mixed-use two-tower uh, two development at the site currently occupied by the Waterfront Hotel. This is right down at the Lakeshore and Brandt area, Spencer Smith uh, Park area. And uh, those of us that love that area know that there's already a honker of a building there that somehow slipped through. Let's bring in Marianne Mead Ward, Mayor of City of Burlington, and with us now. Marianne, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. It's always nice to be serenaded into my seg segment by Celine Dion. Thank you for <laughs> there that. You a little there you go. Interlude. A little, <laughs> a little bit more low key than usual, but what the heck? Um, so, Marianne, I remember talking to you after the other massive building went up on uh, the lakefront in Burlington, and you know, we all talk about densification, we all talk about smart planning, and all that sort of thing, and, and we realize we have to uh, obviously look towards uh, densification, but man. And talk about wrong, uh, wrong spot, and that being right on your lakefront. Um, uh, let's start with this current situation and, and how you got to where you were and how you've managed to, to control this. Absolutely. The, the proposal at hand, which Council unanimously rejected, uh, and that was the recommendation from our professional planning staff, was for a 35 and a 30-story tower connected by a five-story podium, essentially covering pretty much the whole lot with, built, with buildings, right beside Spencer Smith Park. And our staff did an outstanding job of analyzing this uh, along a whole bunch of criteria 
including stormwater management, parkland, uh, green space, health and safety, wind, shadows. I could go on. Uh, it's uh, over 100 pages and found this uh, proposed application deficient in all of those areas. There were only really a couple that they they could say, yeah, this, this meets the, you know, the test. Uh, and they said this should be rejected, and so we did. And and you know the the building you referenced beside uh, the Bridgewater is 22 stories. That was actually approved uh, in the, in the 90s. Uh, Walter mm. Malkovich, our former mayor, was was on. Uh, it was on his watch. And and the thinking at the time was that we'd have this one single iconic uh, high rise uh, downtown. Uh, and we see, you know, sort of what's come, what's come of that. Uh, you know, uh, people mm. in the development industry think that if there's a high-rise anywhere within sight, uh, there should be uh, others. I, l- I look at it like dandelions popping up everywhere. A- and the fact of the matter is there's a place for them and there's a place not to have them. Uh, and this, uh, uh, as our staff said, was far too intense for the site. Yeah, I, I would say that seeing the plan. Uh, so what did you learn from that other development that you could take forward and better prepares Burlington for moving forward with planned growth? The You, you mean the Bridgewater one? Correct, yeah. Yeah, well, what, what we, we've learned a couple of things is that, you know, in the downtown... The, back in the in 2006, our our updated official plan, and we've carried it forward into our new 2020 official plan, is that we have carved up the downtown into what we call precincts because we recognize that there's a, you know a place for protecting heritage for low rise. There's a place for some mid rise and other built form, uh, and there's some existing high rises. But just because there's a high rise somewhere in the downtown, it doesn't mean there should be a high rise everywhere in the downtown. And and that's what planning is. It planning essentially is about what goes where and how much of what goes where. And so it was a very visionary plan uh, back in the day that we as a new council uh, did further refinement to. There were far too many high rises uh, that the council of the previ- the previous council had put into that plan and we corrected that. But, um, you know, it, it, the, the, the fact that there's a 22-story building uh, there doesn't mean there should be one on every block. And, in fact, uh, a classic example is Village Square. It is two stories, and it's going to stay that way, even though mm. it is surrounded by some taller buildings. What goes where is very, very important. So I'll play devil's advocate here, Marianne. Where do you put big buildings of 20 to 30 stories? That's a great question, and we have a plan for that. So uh, the the province is actually encouraging municipalities to direct the, the tallest buildings, the most intense built form, to uh, areas that are served by higher-order transit. And in our case, that's our GO station, our three GO stations, Regional Express Rail. And the reason for that is to cut down on congestion, to put growth where it can be accommodated by existing transit infrastructure and other infrastructure. So we already have, uh, we're, we're in the final stages of developing master plans for each of our three GO stations. We have applications that have either been approved or are coming forward uh, that are, you know, 25, 30, in one case, 35 stories, um, so that's where that's where that type of growth should go, and we can accommodate our share of growth that the province and the region will give us at those locations and and a few other uh, smaller we call them secondary growth areas. So we're going to do our share, but we're going to make sure the right amount of growth goes in the right place.
Hmm. I only got about 30 seconds left. What happens to that land now? Is this just one project pushed off and another one's going to come in behind it? What happens to this piece of land now? Well, we do hope that the applicant will get the message and uh, really do a rethink and a do-over and and bring something more reasonable forward. However, every developer has the right to appeal a decision they don't like to the Ontario Lands Tribunal. Uh, Not a great system. Uh, We, as a regional council, voted unanimously to ask the province to disband that tribunal as undemocratic, but they have that right, and so we'll watch. They have 20 days to do so, so maybe we'll talk again in 20 days, see where this has gone. Mm. Marianne Meadward with us, Mayor, City of Burlington. Uh, two uh, huge towers down by Spencer Smith's Park uh, and the old Waterfront Hotel or the Waterfront Hotel site have been uh, rejected. Uh, Mayor, thanks as always. Much appreciated for the time and be well. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post, Washington Times, and former speechwriter for uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. As we wrap up the week in politics, Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, We haven't chatted too much in regard to the budget. We haven't since uh, it all went down. Your thoughts on what you saw and and what I'm I'm finding fascinating is that housing and inflation have literally vaulted uh, to the top of the charts when it comes to concerns for Canadians. Are you surprised that that is such a major issue right now? Uh, no, because previous polling, if you go back years or even decades, showed mm. that housing obviously was an, was an area of importance. And obviously other issues that are economically based or based on the economy have sort of flip-flopped in terms of, if you look at McLean's or other polls, just of an, of an interest to Canadians or people who respond to these surveys. But it is interesting, yes, so that it's obviously happening now. And part of that is the past couple of years during COVID-19, we've seen our government in Canada and governments around the world spend money, you know, like drunken sailors, obviously for the right reasons in certain cases, but then overly the other way, to the point now that most countries, whether you look at their deficit range, their debt, whatever, it's astronomical to the point where no currency today, even though obviously they have real numbers and they're traded on the market and you can go back and forth, they go up some days, down other days, there's really no value as of right now because our economies have just been shattered. Again, partially for reasons that we can understand, but also in the same sense, reasons we can't. Knowing that and knowing that obviously the Bank of Canada raised their rates, you know, just the last little bit earlier this week, and the fact that the housing market in cities like Toronto, Vancouver, and obviously cities like yours in Hamilton are overly inflated, to the point where when the burst happens, and at some point it will, it could be disastrous unless things are sort of evened out, we can sort of understand why Canadians are concerned about issues, especially the housing market. And a lot of Canadians who want to be first-time home buyers recognize the fact that they're being priced out of the market no matter where they go, whether it's a big city, a smaller city, a mid-sized city, a village, a town. They're frustrated. They're concerned. And obviously because of this, and based on what they saw with a, a budget that was just, you know, spendthrift beyond comprehension, partially because of the Liberal NDP agreement recently and some of the proposals that went through, like national dental care plans, pharmacare, and housing as well, 
um, you can sort of understand why a lot of people are concerned. A lot of young people are concerned, millennial, Gen Z voters, etc. And for that reason, they're looking at things like housing. And yes, it's top of mind because for many of them, it may not be attainable. Is this? Is there much uh, that that we can do? Is there much government can do for them uh, other than building? Are we going to see a building boom here? Well, I'd rather government not be overly involved. To be quite honest, Scott, yeah. but government will obviously have to be partially involved. We know that, and whether I have to bite my tongue on it, and others have to bite their tongues, we know this. Um, Let's put it this way. I mean, obviously, you and I believe in the strength of the power of the private sector and that the free market can do a lot of good things for society. It would be nice if the private sector were able to meet that demand and obviously bring as many things as possible to willing and interested consumers. The problem is that, as we see, there's enormous amounts of housing projects which have gone up even during the time of COVID-19, and sales are still extremely good in many mm. cities, but in others, they're possibly about to slow down. You know, this quarter, for example, in Toronto, where I'm based, we are going to see a small decline in housing prices, but nothing compared to what it needs to, where the market will obviously become uh, more open and more and less select in terms of who can or who can't purchase a home, which is part of the reason why, and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit, why Pierre Polyevre's campaign for the Conservatives has sort of picked up steam based on his near five-minute video about housing and fair housing, which caught on with a lot of people, certainly people on the right for the messaging, but even people on the left who thought, yeah, it's a realistic point of view. I know you uh, are a supporter of Pierre Polyev, and my concern yes. has always been, uh, can he unite Canadians, not just the party, and can he uh, can he appeal to young Canadians? And that certainly seems to be happening. Absolutely. It's happening on a very wide scale, wider than I think a lot of people thought it would, certainly wider than I thought it would. And as Me you too. stated, I support him. Um, and part of it is a couple of issues. One is the housing market and, and talking about the price of housing, which Mr. Polly ever did in the video, which has had, I think, now close to 300,000 views, which is enormous when you think about it, Scott, because it's a nearly five-minute video. It's four minutes, 48 seconds in total. It's something that most people would gloss over, yet it seems like a lot of people are actually following through. It's earned praise on the right, as I said, for messaging, but even people on the left, including Jerry Butts, you know, senior advisor to Pri- or former senior advisor to Prime Minister John Justin Trudeau and one of his close friends from way back when, from university days, even he came out and said it's, it was a good video overall because it tackled the simple thing. Why can't I purchase a home? So that appeals to a lot of young people. And as I said before, first-time home buyers who are worried that they're being priced out of the market. The other thing, which I agree is a, is a dicier subject to talk about, but it is something certainly that appeals to potential young voters, is Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, which hmm. Mr. Polly Ever has made us a major issue out of. And while I certainly do not believe in cryptocurrency, or because the, you know, it's really an ends to no means, it, it's a question of whether you're purchasing nothing and trying to make it into something and trying to compete with paper currency, I think that's very difficult. But at the same time, a lot of young people look at cryptocurrency as sort of a way to increase their wealth, hopefully, or at least, if nothing else, while Mr. Polyabra is talking about creating, you know, uh, uh, basically be- uh, Canada becoming a crypto capital of the world, 
I think that if cryptocurrency is spoken about in intelligent ways as a thing that could obviously be added to the various currencies that we have, much like using El Salvador as an example, with an economy far worse than Canada's, of course, they made cryptocurrency basically their primary uh, currency last September, and it's sort of on par with the U.S. dollar and various other things. And the reason they did it, yes, one, is because their economy was shattered, but secondly, because they realized that this may be their only hope, that being El Salvador, of actually remaining competitive in the market or at least maintaining some stability in the market. And I think that's what also appeals to young people. There are a lot of issues about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in general, but they see it as possibly the last glimmer of hope for them to actually have a role mm. in the free market, participate in the free market, and own something tangible like a house. Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Ludi Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Be well. My pleasure. Happy Easter to you and your family. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, here we are, day 50 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, really over the last couple of days, we've been hearing not only the uh, about not only the atrocities as uh, Russia pulls back and regroups, but also that the southeastern part of the country uh, is, is where the battle will continue next as uh, Russia tries to uh, reorganize. And in the midst of all of this, a Russian warship report, uh, reportedly has been struck by Ukrainian forces, uh, but it's unclear exactly what the situation is or what the damage is done. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. So, Reggie, Reggie, what do we know about this strike? Is it even confirmed? Do we know what happened? Do we know it was Ukraine forces? Well, we do know that the strike um, has been confirmed, and that is because within the last, uh, I would say, 30 minutes or so, Russian officials have now come out to say that the ship has sunk uh, towards the annex coast of uh, of the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, it has what we sunk? Don't know, yeah, what we don't know is how the damage was caused. Russia is still saying that fire broke out uh, on the, the guided missile cruiser, while Ukrainian officials are saying that they had anti-ship missiles that they launched and that it struck uh, that ship. Ultimately, the ship is no longer there. It takes some of the threat away from coastal regions of Ukraine and from observers in the area. They say that ships, Russian warships that were also positioned in the Sea of Azov there have started to back away. So it's gone. We just don't know what happens next now. Man, that's incredible. What a, that, That's incredible breaking news. How uh, any idea, any sort of speculation on if it was hit, how it was hit? Well, I mean, look, Ukraine simply just says that they used an anti-ship missile system uh, in order to 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 inflict damage uh, on the ship. Uh, and if that's the case, then that is another significant uh, win for the Ukrainian military, who is far outnumbered when it comes to uh, the size of their military compared to that uh, of Russia's troops and the capabilities uh, of Russia's military. And for the fact that we are now, as you said, into day 50 of this war uh, and we are seeing, you know, a, an increasing number of uh, of deaths on the Ukrainian side, the fact that Russia has still been unable to capture key cities, including areas like Mariupol, despite the fact they're surrounding it, this is a big deal if it is a confirmed win for Ukraine.
Uh, how do you think Russia will sell the sinking of this ship to its people? If if they even if they say a fire broke out and it sank, I mean, I don't think they're gonna. That's gonna go over well either. That or being hit. Well, I mean, look, they're going to sell it in the best way possible for them, and they will likely say that that there was some form of fire on board and it caused munitions on board to explode, and ultimately uh, it led to a loss for the Russian army. It's how they're going to spin it, and it's likely the only way that they'll spin that because uh, it is against the law in Russia to say anything bad about uh, the special military operation that they're calling it uh, in the news. You cannot put Russia in a negative light in the news in uh, anywhere in the country, uh, and local kind of independent journalistic organizations have been shut down by the Kremlin. So there's only one way to spin this to the Russian public, and that's the way that's going to make Russia not look bad. Uh, is is there any chance that that could have happened, that it did explode with their own munitions, what happened or whatever, and, and Ukraine didn't hit it, or is that is this just another spin? I mean, look, it's it's possible that there could be a fire uh, on board. It's going to be nearly impossible to get any of that kind of information out mm. there, you know, soon, if not at all. Uh, but but given the fact that, you know, if, if history of this war is playing, you know, out kind of in real time right now, uh, it's been said from all of the military analysts that Russia went into this war without a plan uh, and without a realization of what they were doing. So it could be carelessness that caused a fire. It could be a Ukrainian missile that caused this ship to sink. But ultimately, this is a massive loss for the Russian military. Wow. So at this point, obviously, Russia was um, retreating. They're reloading, regrouping, whatever, uh, assessing their situation. And then it looks like going to go in and try to take pieces of the southeast. How does the loss of this ship or whatever the fallout is from it, does that change any of this? Because at one time last week, uh, earlier in the week, Russia saying, oh, we'll, we'll take Kiev. We'll get it. We're going to get it. Yeah. I mean, look, Russia has has been, you know, has had difficulties uh, since they started this this war or this military operation, uh, as they're calling it. Uh, it. It's it's hard to tell from the early onset here how the loss of one ship uh, could potentially impact uh, you know the entirety of their operation. It will make it much more difficult to conduct um, you know amphibious assaults towards coastal regions uh, of Ukraine. But ultimately, as they try to regroup themselves, they moved up into the Belarus area. They're moving towards eastern parts of Ukraine now uh, to to fight and protect what they call our Russian interests in the Donbass area, uh, that fighting is still going to continue. They completely still have encircled uh, the town of Mariupol, which is 90% destroyed right now. And there are reports of, of Ukrainian military surrenders, along with secondary reports of Ukraine's military kind of joining forces with their ultra-nationalistic ultra forces to try and push back on Russian troops. So the fighting is going on. It is expected to get worse, and which is why we are seeing countries like the U.S. offer hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in, in military uh, equipment, uh, intelligence, and support. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and with Public Health and uh, School of Public uh, Public <laughs> School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University, and see what we can and can't do this long weekend. Timothy, I hope you're doing well. Scott. So your thoughts as we head into this long weekend, and I'm thinking, uh, Tim, I've talked to you a bazillion times heading into a long weekend and probably getting the same advice as we've had uh, in the past, but what are your thoughts of where we are and heading into another holiday? 
Right, because I remember about a year and a half ago speaking with you and saying, I was joking at the time, saying, let's get this done with. We don't want to be sort of coming down the, the sixth wave and entering the seventh yeah. wave. Well, we're almost there again. Isn't it incredible? Don't say what you, you, you don't want to happen. It may well happen. Well, we're entering into another holiday. Uh, we've had uh, pol political statements that, uh, what, three, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, saying, well, now's the time to cast away your mask and romp barefoot through the dew-laden grass, knowing that the <laughs> thing is almost over. Well, these things also catch up with you as well. That shouldn't have been said. It was too premature. It was before the March break, and the numbers went right up the moment the masks came off, at least in, with a lot, lot of people. And they'll go up, up again after this holiday. It always happens. The point is we should have some common sense about this, Scott. We need to keep the dampers on this thing. This thing won't go away as long as we uh, behave irresponsibly. Uh, we've got new variants appearing. Uh, uh, we need to discuss those a little bit probably this afternoon. I don't know. But yeah, but we, we, the majority of people are, are imbued with common sense. And they, uh, I go out to the shops, gas station, whatever, and most people are still mm -hmm. retaining their mask. I used to live in uh, Taiwan, and I've been to Hong Kong many, many times, and Tokyo, and so on. And there, long before the pandemic, people wore masks as a normal thing. Nobody looked and pointed or said anything. It was your choice. If you want to wear a mask, you can. And I think that's what we should end up doing here as well. So uh, speaking of China, they're going through a massive wave. They, they've got a zero tolerance. So as soon as anybody gets infected, they close everything down. Uh, and many are surprised that they couldn't get a better handle on this. But from what I understand, their vaccines are not as good. They're more the old school vaccines than uh, the R, uh, mRNA vaccines that are, are better at the variants. And despite what we're hearing, there's a big hesitancy rate. Like even in Hong Kong, I, I was reading somewhere that uh, – those over 80, I mean, less than half of them have even been vaccinated. So how do you explain the mass surge that we're seeing in, in China as the rest of us are trying to learn to live with it, I guess? Oh, there's a lot, a lot in that question, Scott. I think uh, let's let's do the first bit first. I think what we're, we're seeing was the result of a, of a policy that would have worked was if, if this disease, the pandemic, was anything like SARS-1. Because that appeared, uh, we managed to stamp it out with uh, proper quarantine and isolation, and it disappeared back into wild wildlife again. It never appeared since 2003. This one, uh, if, that, if that had been the same, that policy would have worked. What New Zealand did and Australia did in the beginning in China, they were poster, poster examples of how to run a pandemic. But the virus didn't get the memo. And uh, consequently, it's uh, it spread and it's pervaded throughout the whole of the human population around the globe. And so those those cities and states and provinces and countries who locked the doors, uh, built the wall and didn't let anything in, they're now having to face the fact that the doors have to open before uh, before long. We have to let trade in and tourism in. And with that comes the virus into a, a naive, what we would call an, an immune naive population, a population hmm. that hasn't been vaccinated, hasn't been. And so this is what's happening. Shanghai, a city of 25 million people, if you can imagine that. I mean, Toronto is on a good day, 3 million. This is 25 million. And they really hadn't really begun the vaccinations yet to anything like the same extent. And so they are really scrambling. And in all that scrambling, the lockdown is uh, appearing. It's, it's called causing consternation, it's causing all kinds of civil disobedience beginning to happen, something we'd never dreamt would happen in China, but it's happening.
uh, obviously you have experience there. Are you surprised that they didn't get a handle on this? And, and again, you know, we see where we, the rest of the world is with vaccination and with Pfizer, Moderna and such, uh, pretty much keeping the, uh, the severity of these, uh, of these variants at bay. Are you surprised they didn't get a handle on this? Yeah, I'm surprised because any of these uh, uh, Confucian countries uh, are normally pretty much obedient to even an authoritarian government. They don't question too much. And we saw that in the in the first year, a year and a half. What I think they're beginning to see is that the rest of the world, certainly the, the rest of the world like us, which have had a lot of vaccines available, and we're now up to our third and fourth doses, and Israel is talking about a fifth dose, and my goodness, uh, and they're beginning to say, well, why didn't that happen here? Uh, they had the good epidemiology. They just made the wrong political decision. And they have to catch up now in a, a country that's actually a, a quarter of the world's population in one country. That's a lot of catching up to do. So and what do they do, Tim? Do they call up Pfizer and Moderna and, says, and send us some mRNA? They're, um, they have, last count I saw, they have about eight uh, uh, vaccines under various phase one, two, and three trials at the moment. There's two, I think, that, are, that they're running with at the moment. Uh, they are fairly good in terms of keeping people out of uh, serious disease, but not per- perhaps as good as uh, the ones we have in keeping people away from infections. Uh, even the ones we have aren't that good for infections, actually. Uh, so they're just, they're just way behind. And, and then you've got the strange situation whereby here, most uh, elderly people, uh, seniors and so on, have, have swarmed to vaccination sites yeah. and they wanted to line up and get their vaccine. And there, for some reason, they haven't. And mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a bit of a mystery. I think we're going to be learning more about why that is the case for a long time. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor, uh, professor emeritus, School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Be well. I will, Scott. Thanks. Bye. It is uh, Easter weekend, long weekend, planning a road trip. You might want to get a jerry can. Uh, prices up through the roof again as we head into long weekend, and I guess that's no surprise, but... <laughs> The, the increases seem to be bigger now. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine, and I will be getting my jerry cans this evening. So I understand we're getting hit twice here over this weekend. Is that accurate? Uh, three times. So you got hit today, six cents. Tomorrow's five cents. Uh, so up uh, from 162.9 to 168.9 at many stations this morning. Uh, tomorrow up five cents to 173.9. And... Four cents up on Saturday, and it'll stay right until at least, uh, well, Tuesday evening. We'll see what happens for Wednesday. But so far, uh, by my calculation, uh, in the span of three days, a 15 cent a liter increase. So uh, is what is, uh, obviously, there's, there's the normal uh, switch to summer gas, I'm guessing, plus the summer traveling season theoretically getting underway, and then the pandemic and supply and demand issues. Yeah, well, the uh, summer gas hasn't kicked in yet. That's still no. another seven cents, and that's still to hit us. So, uh, yeah, we're mm. looking in the 180s. Uh, at some point, sooner or later, they have to uh, throw in the towel because as of tomorrow, all gasoline in Canada must meet the uh, uh, the uh, summer fuel spec. And that uh, on the markets is trading at about no, 330, 340 a gallon versus the U.S. Uh, 3.15, 14 a gallon. It works out to an extra seven cents a liter. So yeah, uh, this is uh, going to be a very expensive summer. You and I have talked about it many times. Uh, we knew this was going to happen. 
well before the invasion of, of Russia and Ukraine. We knew that there was a shortage of supply. We know that diesel prices are through the roof. We know that uh, refineries are doing everything they can to meet that massive diesel shortfall. And to do that, they're trying to uh, squeeze out a little bit less uh, gasoline. And that in turn is creating another problem because demand is strong for gasoline, despite every, you know the uh, intuition we have that uh, higher prices means less demand. Not the case, certainly not in uh, in other parts of the world that are uh, quickly uh, trying to catch up uh, on the in the post COVID period. A great political cartoon in the Hamilton Spectator today by Graham McKay. He's one of the best uh, mm-hmm. and has a great uh, cartoon of a barge pulling up uh, to Europe and uh, a longshoreman saying, uh, it's great you're here with Canadian oil and gas. And he said, no, we're here with eco-friendly saplings. Um, how <laughs> yeah. very good? Yeah. How has this um, situation that we're in post-COVID, supply, demand, whatever, plus the situation with with Iran, is it changing the discussion? Because south of the border, Biden's screaming for fuel. Well, Biden has no one to blame but himself. Killed a nine hundred thousand barrel a day uh, oil pipeline that would easily substitute the eight hundred thousand barrels that he's bringing in from Russia. Uh, he could have uh, stopped. Uh, you know, uh, preventing uh, frackers from getting access to federal leases. Uh, and he could have worked hard uh, to ensure that his, uh, uh, what do they call them, a Green uh, New Deal caucus, uh, led by folks like uh, AOC, uh, uh, Cortez, whatever her name is, uh, from pushing that agenda that says divestment from oil and gas. You know, it wasn't that long ago, a year ago, International Energy Agency and all the trendies out there saying, hey, you got to get out of oil and gas, no more production, no more. Well, you know what? You got your wish. And now we've got a real problem because fuel prices are now 40 percent higher than they were this last year. Uh, Biden and the International Energy Agency, who obviously got it wrong last May, saying no more production, are now on bended knee asking everybody to produce more oil. They're willing to release emergency supplies that are used in acute situations where you have hurricanes knocking out infrastructure or where you have a war. This is all about them trying to protect and prevent prices from really hitting the American people. And Biden knows full well that come November, his wokeness is going to cost him Congress. And he will become, in effect, after November, by all accounts, because of gasoline prices, uh, he will become a a lame duck president. Uh, Unlike Canadians who sort of roll over and play dead half the time and say, oh, it's all about the environment. The Americans actually take energy security far more seriously than uh, the Canadians do. Uh, is is it just rumors or any any sort of inkling that they may revisit the Keystone Pipeline? Well, no, it's dead, and I think the uh, the supplier, the uh, Trans Canada Energy, uh, has no intention of doing it. You know, you've been slapped in the face. There are no more cheeks to turn, to use a term. Uh, I, I think at this point, uh, they have thrown in the towel. They're going to sue the uh, pants off the American government for being so silly and stupid. And uh, you know, this will have a cost for Americans now. There are a number of other factors here uh, consider. The Americans are going to start using that reserve up, which it was never meant for. And, uh, you know, we saw oil drop to almost 93 bucks a barrel from 104, 105, and then just spring right back as smart traders realize, wait a minute, even if you put in a million barrels of borrowed oil, you have to buy it back at some point down the road. Uh, you leave yourself no cushion whatsoever. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, we're talking diesel and gas uh, being the issue, not oil. You don't put oil in your tank, you put gasoline, and uh, there just isn't enough to go around. Uh, So it's a big, big deal. And I think Americans are now starting to pick up uh, the idea that if they're going to help uh, Europe that put itself, paint itself into a corner, 
by turning its back on oil and gas and coal, and now are trying to find any way they can get uh, get it to uh, to obviously to substitute uh, what they're funding Vladimir Putin with every day by buying a billion dollars in that product because they they uh, they're too uh, narrow minded to be able to do it themselves and have been drinking the green Kool Aid for such a long time. I think for Americans and for Europeans and for the world, these massive increases in global energy prices are giving rise to massive increases in food prices and it's uh, likely to mean a very very painful uh, summer uh, yes we have a little bit of insulation here in canada but frankly you know after canceling all the pipelines forget what biden did we we canceled northern gateway we canceled energy east uh, we fooled around with uh, the trans mountain pipeline we could have we could have easily supplied the world with three million barrels and displaced what russia uh, is doing to hold uh, you know, to hold Europe uh, or to keep his foot on the Euro- the neck of Europeans. We could have done that. We didn't do that. And we still have a prime minister who hasn't read the room, obviously doesn't know what he's talking about and is prepared to say, let's double down this. Let's do more to kill this industry. This guy is out of touch with reality. And you know what? If consumers don't believe me, wait till you're paying $2 a liter this summer uh, because so, I warned this was going to happen. And yet the day before the budget, they unveiled the Bay de Nord oil rig off the coast of Newfoundland, which won't start producing for another six years, and nobody's talking about it. Why? No one's talking about it because it's a drop in the bucket. It'll only last maybe 10 years at best. There's about, uh, uh, last I 300 million barrels. The world uses 100 million barrels a day, so what's that, three days' worth of supply? I mean, it'd be great for Newfoundland and its economy, but you know, people are thinking, oh, renewables and green. There's no money for that, folks. It's a failure. Uh, it's not working. Uh, it does just. And by the way, EVs can't survive without uh, fossil fuels. But I'm not going to simply pick out one or two of the so-called renewables or metaphors we use to be green. The reality is that Canada uh, has the ability to churn out double its oil production right now if it's smartened up and allowed uh, pipelines to be built. But no, Canadians are going to pay a very, very steep price for their ignorance in voting Liberal, NDP, and Green in the last election and elections before that. And I'm not being picking them out and picking on them, but they know full well this is a prime minister who wants to add costs to uh, and, and burden the cost of fuels that we need for mining, for agriculture, uh, for uh, fertilizer, for goodness sakes, uh, and for, of course, transportation fuel, all of which is starting to show up at the grocery checkout. When we all go grocery shopping this evening or we wait until Saturday to do that, Check the bill compared to just six months ago. We talked about this before. It's up 35% year over year, and it's going to get a lot worse. But again, uh, when you play with your vote, you think uh, you know you like the guy's hair, you like the guy's socks, you like his sobbing, his selfies. <laughs> there's a damn big price to pay. And unfortunately, I say this uh, with, no, uh, uh, with no pride. Uh, it's, it's, it's going to be very, very painful for people uh, in having played so ignorantly as they did back last September when they made the vote that they did in favor of a government that's driving this country into the ground. And Dan Dan McTagg is a former Liberal MP and president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, talking about the prices going up heading into this long weekend. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Scott. Have a great Easter weekend to you and your listeners. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley coming in after us, after the 6 o'clock news, and host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing fine. How are you? 
I'm doing very well. And how are you feeling about heading into an, another long holiday weekend? And, uh, you know, the concerns of, of Omicron and the concerns of, of COVID. We, we talked to all the experts uh, for the last two years after every holiday weekend. There's always a little bit of a spike. And, I, I'm you know, obviously a lot of us thought we were through all this, but now we're not. Uh, and masking up. Your thoughts as you head into Easter? Uh, I don't plan to mask up while I eat Easter dinner. Let's put it that way. Well, I don't uh, think that's the idea. <laughs> Well, there would be some who would say, well, you know, just flip that mask to the side between bites because you've got to keep it very safe. Um, look, I, I mean, what, what are we going to say? There's a, I read somewhere today that the numbers have plateaued. I read somewhere today that they were still going up. I mean, Wastewater I has plateaued, I believe. Yeah, yeah exactly. Whose so, job is that? Whose job is wastewater? Thankfully not mine. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. That person, whoever that person is who has to slosh around in the wastewater to get the samples, they deserve a raise. Yes. I don't know. I don't know what else we should, who else gets raises, but that person who is the wastewater folk, he or she should definitely get more money. What a job. And I'm thinking in order to apply, you've had to have had COVID and lost your sense of smell. (laughs) It would help. Yes. Among other senses that you've lost. And and I hopefully you want a really good hazmat suit because, uh, you know, if this is just, you know, show up in business attire and try and get some out of there without falling in, that's um, that's a risk I would not be willing to take. Let's put it that way. Look at that, Scott. We've successfully climbed right into the toilet with this. It's legitimate. It's literally, though, where the testing is coming from, which, you know, it's it's incredible science when you think about it, that someone yeah, says it is. that someone upon, once upon a time of all the places to look said, you know where we'd find out who's sick? Let's check their poop. And let's check the other stuff that's going. And so sure. someone thought of it, and then someone figured out a way to extract the information from this. And it's brilliant. It's just, you know, Scott. You know, it's really funny. My wife and I were talking just the other day, not about this, but about a similar thing. We said, "Who were the people who, early on, like way, 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 way back, were the first ones who had to find out if a particular food was safe or not?" When you were like, you know, you grab this one fruit and it looks pretty good, so you bite it and that's here you taste you it. Go, you know, so yeah, you you, you try it. And, and who were the people who got stuck having to be the samplers and the testers? Well, who was the person who sat around one day and went, "Wow, sampled the the, the droppings. That'll work." And again, like, hey, what goes in must come out, man. I, I guess, but it's it took a special, you know, thought process. Someone lying in bed, just about to fall asleep, and went, "Whoa, the light bulb went on, and that's how we can do it." Again, thank I, goodness. I, Thank goodness for STEM research. Yeah, for smarter people than us and also people who were probably telling potty jokes right before bed. That all came together for them. All right, let's try to get this out of the bowl. Who's on the show tonight? Uh, well, we are talking, uh, we're talking some politics. We are talking uh, the big thing. Well, one of the things we're going to talk about in the second hour, you alluded to it, it is Easter weekend. And you know what? The, uh, the number of people who bother with Easter these days, like really with Easter, not just with getting together with your family. Obviously, we know attendance at church and things are going down. We're going to talk about why that's happening and how that's happening, and is this something that, uh, you know, it, it certainly is our country's tradition, but is it a, is an important thing that more people now, or fewer people now, I mean, are attending services or thinking about Easter and the real meaning that it was for? All right, it's all coming up uh, moments from now after the 6 o'clock news on the Scott Radley Show. And, of course, you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have yourself a great long weekend. Thanks for the time. Have a great show.
You do. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave for listening. Did we get a last word? What do you mean, no? I will take the last word. Happy me, happy Easter, and do not get in a bun fight over a mask. Have a great weekend. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.